Amen. Please be seated. So far, the parables found in Matthew 13, the story around them is essentially this. In the parable of the sower, Jesus uses the picture of seed time and harvest. And that picture wasn't chosen by accident. Seed time and harvest was an Old Testament picture for how Jesus would redeem Israel. So when Jesus begins the parable of the sower and uses all the traditional imagery of Israel's redemption, the people were anticipating a parable that showed Israel's victory. But the parable of the shower didn't seem to show a victorious Israel at all. Instead, the parable of the sower showed Israel as a mixture of ready and unready ground. And for the Jews who heard this parable, perhaps the most shocking thing about the parable of the sower was what it didn't say. The indictment of evil kings like Herod and Caesar were strangely absent from the parable altogether. Instead, indicting the Romans, instead of indicting the Romans, Jesus appeared to indict the hearts of those who were listening to him. Jesus appeared to focus on Israel and describe them as a people ill-prepared for the coming of the sower. And I think the people would have struggled hearing this. Jesus brought up their unready hearts, but said nothing about the other evil in the land. Jesus was quick to bring up their sinfulness, but Jesus didn't have anything to say about the evils committed in the name of Rome. I imagine the people saying something like, fine, Jesus, not everyone is ready. You got us on that. But what do you have to say about all the other evil we see? And I think the parable of the weeds addresses that exact concern. In that parable, Jesus said, he's like a sower whose field has been infiltrated by an enemy, an enemy who has planted weeds among the wheat. But the sower sees it. The sower sees every stalk of wheat and every single weed in the land. And he has a plan for them both. Jesus tells them that the day of the harvest is on the way, a day when the wheat and the weeds will be separated. And on the day of the harvest, the wheat will be gathered up by the sower and brought into his home. And the weeds that have plagued the land for eons will be gathered up and burned. The sower sees the weeds and their judgment is assured only a matter of time. So why not judge the evil in the land immediately then? Why doesn't Jesus make that very day the day of the harvest? The parable of the weeds addresses that exact concern as well. There were some who were calling for the day of the harvest, but they failed to notice how unready their hearts were for that day to come. They failed to understand just how unready their hearts were for the harvest to begin. They failed to see that Israel's Messiah had come to address the root of Israel's problem. And the root of Israel's problem did not reside in a palace. They failed to see that Jesus came to fight not the tyranny of Caesar, but the tyranny of sin and death. They failed to see that each and every one of their hearts, in that heart, the tyrant enslaved each and every one of them. That by being enslaved to sin, they were living outside of the kingdom. And if the day of the harvest were to commence, the evil they saw around them would be judged, but so would the evil in their hearts as well. And I think that's the message of those two parables together. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explains the unready state of many in Israel. And in the parable of the weeds, Jesus explains that God delays judgment for the sake of those who were still unready. Now imagine you're someone who just heard all of this and you understood what Jesus was saying. 
The Messiah is here, but he had no plans to overthrow Rome, no plans to vindicate Israel as a nation. Instead, the Messiah was here to free me from the rule of sin. He was here to regenerate my heart and to make it ready to receive him. I can imagine someone saying, all right, Jesus, fine, I'm in. I don't want to have an unready heart. On the day of the harvest, I want to be accounted among the wheat. I want to be in your kingdom. But Jesus, if I may ask a question, how does the kingdom of God taking root in my heart really make all that much difference? Jesus, you see how much evil there is in the world, and I'm just one person. How does changing my heart, how does changing one heart outweigh all the evil I see? I imagine as Jesus begins the parable of the mustard seed, he has questions like those running through his mind. Because I think the next two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and of the leaven, we hear Jesus' response to that exact question. How does the redemption of one heart outweigh all the evil found in the world? In the parable, Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. It's unassuming. It looks like it wouldn't amount to much. But Jesus points out, don't be fooled by the size of the seed. Because from this tiny seed, a plant will come. And this plant will be taller than all the others. The mustard seed may seem insignificant. It's not much to look at. It doesn't seem capable of being the biggest tree in the garden, does it? But everyone knew that out of that insignificant seed, something amazing was possible. And while you may not understand how something as small as the mustard seed can grow into something as large as a tree, everyone trusts that it will. And I think that's the point Jesus makes the connection for them. These people don't understand how God's kingdom present in their hearts addresses all the evil they see around them. They don't understand how treating the hearts of people like them will ever make a difference in the world. But Jesus tells them, don't be fooled by what you see on the surface. On the surface, maybe the kingdom that Jesus proclaims looks like it wouldn't amount to much. Maybe it looked like it would never address the evil that was in the world and Jesus says something like, okay, I hear you. So let me tell you something, a story about something else that's small and unassuming. A story about something that looks like it wouldn't amount to much either. Let me tell you a story about a mustard seed. Jesus tells them that his kingdom may appear to be insignificant. It may appear to be the smallest of all the seeds, but if you trust him, if you receive him, if the mustard king of his, of his kingdom is planted in your heart, then it will grow in ways no one could have predicted. You will be fruitful in ways you can't imagine. Jesus says something like, I know you can't imagine how that will happen. I know you can't imagine how the kingdom growing in your heart and just one heart will make a difference in a world filled with so much evil. I know it's hard to imagine that, but would you trust me when I say that it will? The parable of the leaven is similar. Jesus tells them that just a tiny bit of leaven can permeate and change a large amount of flour. So too is his kingdom. And the idea behind both parables is Jesus saying, I know what you see on the surface doesn't look promising. I know you don't understand how my kingdom will bring about the redemption of the world. I know you're hurting and you're afraid, but you trust that there are more things at work in this world than what you see on the surface. I think with these two parables, Jesus is asking the people to trust him. 
He's asking them to trust that he can bring about in them something so unexpectedly substantial. He's asking them to trust him as much as they trust a small mustard seed hidden in the dirt to grow into a tree. Jesus is asking them to trust that he can work in them in unseen ways, that the unseen works of God will spread to every fiber of their being. Just like a small bit of leaven hidden in the flour can permeate and spread to the whole loaf. Jesus is asking these people to trust that he's working on levels deeper than the surface. To trust that his kingdom permeated the worlds in ways they could not perceive. And although his kingdom worked in ways they couldn't see, although his kingdom operated in places beyond their perception, they could trust his kingdom was actively working nonetheless. They could believe that because just like the mustard seed hidden in the dirt or the leaven hidden in the loaf, we all trust that there are more things at work in this world than what we see on the surface. Jesus finishes the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, and Matthew records that very soon after this, Jesus and his disciples, they depart. And I think it's important to take note of that. There, there are no more crowds in the rest of Matthew 13, just Jesus and his disciples. And he takes this time to tell his disciples three more parables. The parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl seem to continue with the same themes as before. In both parables, there's something that's hidden. And the thing that's hidden is located in something that looks unassuming or ordinary. But what's hidden in these unassuming places is something of immense value. And once it's discovered and brought to the surface, it reorients everything around it. That sounds like the exact point Jesus was making in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. These parables are describing the kingdom of God. They describe its hiddenness, its immense value. So all of these parables are remarkably similar, but the parables of the treasure in the field and the pearl introduce something that's new about the kingdom. In the parable of the treasure and the pearl, Jesus describes someone who catches a glimpse of that which is beyond the surface. He describes someone who sees that which is usually hidden. And when that which was normally hidden is revealed, their response is to sell everything they own and to go all in just so they can possess it. So what's Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that in order to enter his kingdom, we need to sell all of our stuff? Is Jesus telling us that we should sell our houses and cars and cash in our 401ks and move to the mission field and live in a hut? Is that what he's saying? Well, let's be clear. Maybe. It may be that Jesus wants you to sell everything you have and follow him. He has made that call to many before, so we would be wise to listen for it again. But for as true as that may be for some, I don't think Jesus makes it a condition for all. I mean, think about it. Jesus is talking about selling all of their possessions to who? The disciples. Y'all want to guess what the disciples don't have a lot of? Stuff, right? So why would Jesus tell people who own so very little that they had to sell it all if they wanted to be in the kingdom? Well, that's easy. But what if Jesus isn't talking about just possessions? What if Jesus is saying something like entering his kingdom, possessing his kingdom, changes how you value everything? I think Jesus is telling his disciples that possessing the treasure of the kingdom may cost them everything they have. And they must be willing to sacrifice everything they have in its pursuit. And this is really crucial for them to hear, 
Guys, in the very next chapter, chapter 14 of Matthew, John the Baptist is executed. In the following years, every single disciple, with the exception of John, will suffer the same exact fate. I think in these parables we see Jesus preparing his disciples for what's to come. I think Jesus is showing them that there are no free passes, that there is no way that you can enter his kingdom and not suffer the loss of something. And what you lose may indeed be your life. I think Jesus is preparing his disciples for that exact reality. And guys, I think he's preparing us for the exact same thing. Now, most likely, we won't be executed for the crime of following Jesus anytime soon. It's a crazy world. It's changing fast, so, so who knows? But whether one dies young or old as a martyr or not, every single one of us will meet our death. And I think our impending deaths is exactly why Jesus ends this string of parables with the parable of the nets. Jesus reiterates in the parable of the nets that the day of the harvest is coming. The day is coming when every single one of us will meet Jesus himself face to face. And if you're in his kingdom, if the life of the resurrected Jesus dwells in your heart, then on the day of the harvest, you will be welcomed into his arms as one of his own. For those in Christ, for those who reside in his kingdom, the day of the harvest is a cause of rejoicing. But for those who are outside of the kingdom, not a good day. And I want to say this about the day of the harvest and those who were found outside of the kingdom. When Jesus talks about death and hell and the gnashing of teeth and all that other terrible stuff, he isn't trying to scare you into being a Christian. Oh, he's giving us a warning. He's making sure we understand just how much is on the line. If you fear death and hell and because of that you turn to Jesus, fine. I have no problem with that. But the day of the harvest isn't meant to scare you. The day of the harvest is meant to inspire courage. It's meant to inspire hope. The day of the harvest is a promise from God that evil will not reign on earth forever and that you can be counted among the sons and daughters of the Father himself if we receive Jesus. If we receive the one that we were designed to know. C.S. Lewis tells a story that perfectly shows Jesus' invitation to us and the consequences of declining it. The very beginning of his book, The Silver Chair, a young girl named Jill encounters Aslan and he's laying by a creek in the woods and Jill finds herself very thirsty. I'll read you a snippet of what happens next. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl, and as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, realizing that she might as well have asked for the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. But the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? said Jill. The lion responded and said, I make no such promise. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and whole realms, said the lion. 
Well, I dare not drink then, said Jill. The lion replied and said, If you do not drink, then you will die of thirst. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I guess I'll have to go and look for another stream then. The lion looked at Jill and only said, There is no other stream. This is the situation of every person. We are dying of thirst, and Jesus offers himself as living water. He offers himself as true food and true drink. But we do not drink from the living water on our terms. That's not how his kingdom works. Instead, we come to him in full submission, trusting him with our very life. And if we decide that full submission and vulnerability to him isn't really our style, but that's too high of a price to pay. If we decide to pass on the water Jesus offers and instead search for another stream, then we won't make it long. We won't make it long because there is no other stream. There is no other place for refuge and rest than that which is offered by Jesus. Amen.